This episode is brought to you by Vonage. With Vonage Video API, your developers can easily create custom video experiences tailored to your business. Enhance every conversation with live video, whether it's delivering faster tech support, improving customer service, or enabling interactive meetings and events. Unlock the true video potential of your business. Discover how at Vonage.com. Cases of the new coronavirus have been popping up around the U.S. for more than a month now. And it's reached the nation's largest metropolitan area, New York City, where the outbreak has quickly grown to be one of the biggest in the country. We begin with the latest on the coronavirus outbreak. The number of cases doubling in the New York City area overnight. The mayor today calling the spread unpredictable and worrisome. Most linked to a lawyer who frequently commuted out of Grand Central Terminal, one of the busiest train stations in the country. Governor Cuomo declared a state of emergency to help quickly and effectively contain the spread of the virus. There are now 89... What is worrisome to public health officials and also to people who work in infectious disease and epidemiology is that we now have community spread in New York. Melanie West covers health in New York. And she says that when cases jump from isolated incidents to community spread, the cycle of a disease takes on a different tenor. I liken this stage to the tumble cycle in the dryer, where it's just all coming at the same time over and over and over again. And as a reporter who's covered this, and Ebola, and measles, and Legionnaires, it's just that the puzzle pieces all start to manifest in a way that looks familiar. And yet this outbreak is different because unlike measles, for example, where there's a vaccine or there's measures that can halt the spread medically of a highly communicable infectious disease, with coronavirus, you just don't have that. There's not a vaccine. There aren't places to house widespread numbers of people who are ill at this time. All you have is containment. Containment is the tool. Containment. In the coronavirus era, this has become the buzzword, the way health authorities around the globe are trying to limit how far and how fast the disease will spread. As the disease keeps spreading, the strategy is being put to the test. Today on the show, does the strategy of containment actually work? And if it doesn't, what's next? Welcome to The Journal, our show about money, business, and power. I'm Ryan Knudsen. And I'm Kate Leinbaugh. It's Monday, March 9th. New York's coronavirus outbreak is a good example of what the strategy of containment looks like in the U.S. The outbreak in New York started with a 50-year-old lawyer who works in Manhattan. He and his wife and their children live in the suburbs of New York City in Westchester County. This lawyer hadn't traveled to any areas hit by coronavirus. So when he got sick, it was days before his case was on the radar of local public health officials. He became ill, he said, on February 22nd. He was admitted to the hospital five days later with some sort of very severe respiratory illness that health officials later, you know, identified as coronavirus. Last we understand, he is still in an intensive care unit at a hospital in northern Manhattan. And he's there because he has an underlying respiratory illness, which has caused him to be more sick than maybe a general person. 
When this lawyer was identified as having coronavirus, he became patient zero for a possible outbreak. And he came under the same protocols used across the country for patients with a virus. Right away, his steps were tracked down by a special group of investigators. They're commonly called disease detectives, which sounds really, you know, awesome. Like, is it Sherlock Holmes or like... (laughs) Cagney and Lacey. Yeah, you have this vision in your mind, and it's so cinematic. The idea of a disease detective who's out there and discovering things and, you know, dressed cool. The reality is, is that the work breaks out into kind of two different levels. On one level, for example, when we're tracking travelers coming into the United States from China, that's a lot of data entry and phone calls, and it's a lot of wonky stuff The other part of disease detective work is what they call contact tracing, and that's when public health officials will directly reach out to a person who has been sickened or to their immediate family members and find out all of the movements of that person before that point of diagnosis. And so in this New York case, what exactly did the disease detectives do? The first steps that they took would have been to isolate his family from other people make sure that they remained in their home. So the thing that they do is they drop this immediate net around the people who were most intimate with him. And during that time, then public health officials and the state have to decide, okay, well, how much further are we widening this net? As soon as the lawyer tested positive for the virus, his immediate family, his wife and kids, were asked to self-quarantine in their home. Meanwhile, these disease detectives got to work doing what they do in these kind of cases, widening that net. They try to determine as quickly as possible who else might have come into contact with a patient in the days before diagnosis. The goal is to find anyone who might have been exposed and stop them from spreading the virus further. It all starts with an extremely detailed interview with the first patient and their family about how they have been spending their time. You get that person's information in 15-minute increments. Who'd you have a meeting with? Can I see your calendar? Where did you eat for lunch? Did you share a meal with somebody? Did you share a fork with this person? Have you been intimate with someone? What is that intimacy? Did you kiss this person? You know, that is the level of detail that we've been told would happen in one of these tracing conversations. And if you can think about it, Kate, if you had to go back to last Wednesday— and write down every person that you interacted with, would you even be able to do that? No. I wouldn't be able to do it either. I mean, those are all of the contacts that you would have to sit down and think through if you have tested positive for the coronavirus. Based on the answers to that, who you were in close contact with, then another call gets made to that close contact, and a similar line of questioning happens. But what's important about that secondary contact is finding out whether that person is feeling unwell. Do you have a fever? Have you developed a cough? There's a whole range of questions that happen around that. By doing those interviews, disease detectives get a fuller picture of who the patient may have infected. And with a lawyer in New York, they found his potential transmission extended far beyond his wife and children. We understand him to be a person who is very active in his religious community. On the 22nd of February, he attended services at his synagogue in New Rochelle. 
And on the 23rd, he attended a funeral, which was attended by many, 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 many people at the synagogue. And then later that day, he went to a bat mitzvah. Health officials have said that this man was exhibiting symptoms of coronavirus, at least during the time that he attended services and when he attended a funeral and when he attended a bat mitzvah. And because he was exhibiting symptoms during that time, that's where the net gets dropped. You have a community of people who are so rich in rituals and traditions, and the richness of community has been a place now where there has been a spread of a virus, unintentionally, by accident. How many individuals have the disease detectives identified as potentially interacting with this gentleman and his family? What has been said is that there's about a 1,000 people who would have been at any one of those events with him. Disease detectives help make the call about whether certain people should self-isolate. That doesn't mean those people have the virus, but they could. And so disease detectives have asked whole communities to be extra precautious, like in New York. They reach out to the synagogue and they say, okay, we need you to contact everybody who would have been at that event and let them know that there is a case of coronavirus and we are going to begin implementing new procedures for how they should isolate, who they should contact if they're feeling unwell, and what should they do in this case. You know, there's a lot of rudimentary communication that has to happen, right? Are people really getting the contact that they need? If you're old, has someone called you to tell you that there's an email that went out about this? And to a certain extent, they rely on a synagogue or a school to be the best communicators to the community to let them know that we need you to stay at home at least until X, Y, and Z. And I think at least in Westchester, there has been very good cooperation between all the parties to make sure that, you know, isolation is happening at the school level, at the religious level, at the community level. For the most part, the instructions have been stay in your home. Because even if you're not showing symptoms, you might be carrying the virus. It's thought to have an incubation period of up to 14 days. And so by staying inside, you're less likely to unknowingly spread the disease. But with each day, more of the self-quarantined people in New York have started showing symptoms. In his immediate orbit, his wife, a son, and a daughter have all tested positive. A family friend tested positive. That family friend, health officials say, then passed it along to his family members. And then a separate neighbor who drove him to the hospital also developed coronavirus. That's the most immediate circle. Off of that, we now know that there is wider community spread, and that presents a new challenge in terms of tracking people and tracing people and containment to try to make sure that the, you know, many outbreaks that we have now don't grow in such a way that we're going to have widespread uh, movement of this virus in the community. What are authorities doing to prepare for the chance that the virus does continue to spread beyond these mini outbreaks? At this point, the state is telling residents to go about their regular business, but to be more mindful of their health. If you aren't feeling well, you shouldn't go to work. If you see a subway car that is packed, maybe you should wait for the next one. 
The governor had indicated at one point when he was discussing emergency appropriations for the state, money that might be needed for a hotel if you had to quarantine a great number of people. Those are the kinds of planning things that are happening at that point. Absent that, it's everybody's individual responsibility to be monitoring their own health and talking with their own health professionals. And at some point, if they feel unwell, that gets elevated up to a public health concern. Another way to look at it is everybody's on their honor right now, right? Everybody's made a promise to each other that we're not going to go out there and we're not going to be going to the grocery store. And if we feel unwell, we're definitely going to let somebody know. Everyone's on high alert. After the break, why federal health authorities are hoping everyone stays on their honor and why asking everyone to stay home is still the best strategy we have. How well do we know the people we work with every day? We share lunches, jokes, and deadlines, but are we aware of the unseen struggles we often face silently? Stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or feeling misunderstood at work. Through insight, awareness, and empathy, we can start to better see the issues our coworkers are dealing with, and that can make us and our companies healthier, too. Join Holly Robinson-Pete and her guests on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. This episode is brought to you by Canva. It's time to ditch your old presentation programs at work and try Canva presentations instead. It'll help you create stunning slides in no time. No design experience needed. Just start with one of the designer-made templates or generate something in seconds with AI. Then polish it up and get ready to wow your audience. It's that easy. Nail your next work presentation with Canva presentations at canva.com. Design for work. Tap the banner to learn more. Welcome back. Despite officials' best efforts, the coronavirus outbreak in that New York suburb has spread. There are now more than 140 confirmed cases in New York, including other unrelated cases. But there's little else outside of containment strategies that healthcare authorities can do to stop the disease. There is no vaccine, and there won't be one for many months. And drugs to attack the virus are still in development. So more people will get sick. And as they do, it will put a heavy strain on the healthcare system. The goal at this point is just to slow down that spread. You know, in the beginning, everybody thought, we'll, we'll stamp this thing out. I mean, that was the hope. And that's generally what you want to do if you catch something early and small enough. Betsy McKay covers public health. She says that in the past, containment has stopped a virus— like with the SARS virus in the early 2000s. SARS, which, you know, caused more than 8,000 cases around the world and was very deadly. SARS was contained and it actually disappeared. Nobody's seen it since 2004. But at this point, what people are really starting to say is, look, coronaviruses gotten out there so much, just it seems like it's going to become what's called an endemic virus, which is, you know, here to stay with us in one form or another. And maybe it will cause regular outbreaks and epidemics, or maybe it'll just kind of come and go. It's hard to know. What we do know is that the case numbers of coronavirus in the U.S. keep growing. Over 600 people have now tested positive which has led public health officials to start considering a new approach to stopping the spread of the virus, mitigation. 
Mitigation is when it's already in the community, it's already transmitting, and you can't stop it now. You can't keep it out. So you do what you can to reduce the number of people who are infected and how sick they get. There's a term called social distancing, which refers to stuff like closing schools or limiting the number of people who can attend a gathering. And those, by the time you've got, you know, lots of cases in a community and they're transmitting, that's mitigation. Turning to mitigation is less about stopping a disease in its tracks and more about limiting how quickly the disease spreads. The healthcare system in this country and in most countries doesn't have a lot of surplus capacity, particularly in intensive care units. We don't have a lot of ventilators if people, you know, have severe pneumonia. So you don't want a lot of people sick all at once. And one of the strategies that the public health world is employing right now is just try to delay the spread of this virus until we can get to the end of flu season. I think of it as a second flu. I mean, do we really want another disease out there that's like the flu circulating all the time and, you know, threatening us and overburdening our health system and causing lots of agony and death? So the more you can contain it around the world or just, you know, limit it, the better for the whole world. Health experts have said that mitigation strategies could help do something called flattening the curve. Imagine a line graph of cases over time. If a lot of cases hit at once, that graph would spike. A spike would cross above the threshold of hospital capacity. Public health officials want to stop that spike. By mitigating the spread, the number of cases would go up slowly over time. Instead of a spike, there'd be a flatter curve so the health system would have more of a chance to keep up. Is there any, anything after mitigation? Giving up, but I don't, I've never known any giving up and just saying spread wherever you want. But I've never um, heard of that happening unless it was complete chaos and it's something out of a, like one of those horror movies, apocalyptic movies. But again, the coronavirus, it's far from being widespread in the United States. They're still pushing to try to contain it and urge people to contain it because that seems the sensible thing to do. You should fight something as long as you can. All over the world, governments are fighting it. In Italy, the government has turned to very aggressive forms of mitigation. It first limited the movement of almost 17 million people in the northern regions. And today, the government extended the measures to the entire country of 60 million people. In parts of the U.S., some officials are looking at mandatory measures to stop people's movement. And private companies are shutting down offices and canceling events. In the meantime, Melanie says the best we can all do is prepare ourselves for the possibility of self-isolation. I think about these people in Westchester who are now home with their kids hanging out for some undetermined period of time, hoping that they don't begin to show symptoms. If I had to spend two weeks in my house with my family, I just don't know what that would look like. It would be really hard. And I know what I'm going to do if we have to be in our house for two weeks, and it's not going to be in my Manhattan apartment. And I thought it out two weeks ago, and I don't know if that's the function of being a person who reports on this or just a over-anxious person that likes to plan, but, like, I already have a plan. Like, I'm, I'm set. What's your plan? 
You're not going to visit me, are you? No. Okay. I won't. I, I'm an honorable person. <laughs> my plan is uh, my in-laws have a lake house in an isolated part of New York State. And there's plenty of room there. And there's Wi-Fi and cable. And my two young children will be welcome to rip apart that house. And uh, my husband and I will be happy on a different floor of the house if we had to ride this out. Like, I have mapped this out. What's your plan? Uh, my plan is to stay home. <laughs> the economic impacts of this coronavirus are taking a toll on businesses from travel and retail to manufacturing and logistics. On Monday, the stock market plunged yet again. The Dow Jones Industrial Average fell 7.8%, its biggest one-day drop since 2008. That's all for today, Monday, March 9th. The Journal is a co-production of Gimlet and The Wall Street Journal. If you like the show, follow us on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. We come out every weekday afternoon. Thanks for listening. See you tomorrow.